4. It's my privilege to share with you from Mark chapter 4. We're continuing our series on the Gospel of Mark. This is our final message for the summer from, the, from Mark's Gospel. And next week, we're beginning our summer series from the Psalms, affectionately entitled Deep Cuts from the Psalms. More on that next week. I'll have the privilege to begin that series next week with you. But Mark chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 21. And as we do, I want to uh, thank Dave and Dan for uh, carrying the ministry responsibilities while I was away. I listened yesterday. This is my experience of Barbenheimer. I listened to both of their messages back to back yesterday and was, and was richly ministered to as they led us effectively through these passages. It really, although my message was basically done really, was not only faithful to the text, but served you and served me as we continue to allow this precious gospel, Mark's gospel, uh, to draw us closer to Jesus uh, together. So thank you, brothers. I look forward, by God's grace, to serving today in that capacity. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. I'm going to read through verse 34. This is God's word. May he give us in the words of Jesus of Nazareth, ears to hear and eyes to see what he is saying. And Jesus said to them, verse 21, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain, in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, and as they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, as we see in this passage, the exhortation 
to listen carefully, to pay attention to what we hear. And yet you know, Lord, Father, you are a compassionate Father that our frame is weak. And even during a message from the scriptures, we can be easily distracted by the cares of the day, by the events of the previous week, by the forebodings and anxieties of an uncertain future. Lord, all host of manners would distract us. So we pray by your spirit, which you in grace help us to fulfill the command, even this morning, to pay attention to what we hear in order that these few words, these precious parables that Jesus equipped his disciples with would be defining perspectives for us, making sense of our lives through faith in you, and even so, Lord, equipping us as disciples to be fruitful together and in your mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I imagine many of you have seen the movie or read the book, the Narnias, the Chronicles of Narnia. How many of you have seen or read? Wonderful. Then this story, I think, will be familiar to you. Found in the most popular of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is that episode where Lucy first enters the parallel world of Narnia from her own war-torn nation of Great Britain. And she returns back to this world through a wardrobe, a large wooden closet in an empty room in the country house where she is staying. When Lucy first goes to Narnia and she returns back to this world, she's faced with the problem of having to convince her siblings of where she has been. Do you remember that part of the story? She comes back, they're playing a game of hide and seek, and she suddenly appears and says to them quite excitedly, here I am. And they look at her, and Susan says, what do you mean, here I am? Lou, and Lucy says, you didn't miss me? No, you just left us. And she says, no, I haven't. I've been gone for hours and hours and hours. And they say, what are you talking about, Lou? So she takes them to the wardrobe, the closet in the empty room in the old country house. And as she goes, she talks about her experience of going through the wardrobe and entering Narnia where there's fir trees and snow and this mysterious creature, Mr. Tumnus. And she speaks about it with such conviction. And Lucy, of course, in the Narnia Chronicles is a trustworthy, noble character throughout the book. I think she's Lewis's picture of faith. Finally, they try to believe her, and Susan enters the wardrobe with Peter looking in. Susan knocks on the wood. She bristles up against the fur. And Peter says, do you remember to learn? Oh, that's good, Lucy. You almost had me. Lucy's face begins to red. No, no, I really did go. And Edmund, 
who's more cynical, accuses her of lying. Despite Lucy's honesty, despite her incitement, despite her conviction, despite her trustworthiness and persistence, all Lucy's siblings could see was a wardrobe. All they could see was the wooden back of the wardrobe and the furs in the wardrobe. No snow, no trees, no signs of Narnia, no Mr. Tumnus. As convinced as Lucy was, they could not bring themselves to believe what they seemed to them to be unbelievable. But they soon learned something, didn't they? They soon learned what we often learn, that appearances can be deceiving. And the text we just read confronts us with that reality in the life of these disciples. They are faced with truths from Jesus that seem to their natural eyes and their personal experience incredible, fantastic, even unbelievable. It is as everything in their lives contradicts what they hear and see in their daily life. And Jesus teaches them in these concluding parables a new perspective a new way of interpreting their experience and circumstances that will not only assure them of God's faithfulness in the present, but will prepare them for the future. And lest I be misunderstood, Jesus expects you and I to get this because he repeats the command, pay attention, listen to me, over 20 times in this chapter. 20 times. Parents, have you ever had to repeat yourself two times with your children to get them to listen to you? The Savior comes to us in his word and repeats that exhortation 20 times because at least for this pastor, as I look at these parables, they are familiar, but they have gone unapplied and therefore I have not listened. I have not paid careful attention and therefore I have not benefited from the perspective and the discipleship and the training and the wisdom and the grace that these familiar parables. I shared a couple weeks ago from Thomas Schreiner's forward to Jason Meyer's commentary on Mark that Mark is the most neglected of the four gospels because it's the smallest of the four. I think in my life, these parables have been neglected because I know what they say, but I haven't listened carefully to what they're saying, and therefore they've gone unapplied. So you can pray for me that these would change my perspective, and therefore I would benefit from them the way Jesus intended. Here's my main point this morning. Remember the mustard seed. Let it shape your faith for the rest of your life in what Christ is doing in our lives today. Let's look at the first parable together, shall we? And pay attention to what Jesus says. This is my first theme, if you will, from 21 to 24, because appearances are deceiving. Jesus said to them, and he tells them two parables, a lamp and that of a measure. We see the lamp mentioned in verse 21, 
a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. And then he says this, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them again, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has more, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The lamp under a basket. And the call to true hearing, true listening. He asked them a question, didn't he, in the first verse, but he answered it before they could respond. Is the lamp, is the purpose of the lamp to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Now let's consider context as we consider this simple parable and then understand his response. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to the light. Jesus has been teaching in parables since the beginning of verse one, chapter four, by the sea, by the Sea of Galilee. And he's been addressing the crowd, the crowd that gathered there, drawn as they were to the reports of his miracles and perhaps his authoritative teaching. But prior to that, in chapter three, Jesus in the midst of miracles and even deliverances of people from demonic possession and authoritative teaching, he is opposed by the religious authorities and they plot for his destruction. So he's facing real significant opposition and his own family shows up and tries to take him away and says, excuse us, sorry, he's with us, he's out of his mind. We'll take him, his own family does not believe his claims that he is, as Mark chapter one, verse one says, the son of God come to announce the kingdom of God is upon us. He teaches the crowd in verses one through nine, the parable of the soils, which Dave led us through. But then he pulls his disciples aside beginning in verse 11, and he says, to you, to you has been given the secret, as Dave took time to unpack that word, the mystery of this parable to you, the 12 disciples whom he just called, I will explain everything to. And as Dave pointed out, that simple parable where seed was scattered Three-fourths of the seed that fell on the ground did not yield good fruit. But one-fourth, which seems extremely inefficient, yields a harvest that exceeds proportion. 30 and 60, a hundredfold. Shocking. It's simple. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But the crowd didn't understand the parable. And the disciples needed further explanation. And so Jesus pulled them aside and said, to you, to you, it has been given by my gracious father, the key to explain the mystery of my parables, because I will explain everything. Verse 22, for nothing 
is hidden except to be made manifest. It's the same word used in the parable of the sower to talk about how the secret mysteries of the kingdom are being revealed to the disciples, but to the crowds, it remains a mystery. It remains unexplained. It remains hidden, not manifest. To the disciples, revealed, explained, applied. To the crowd, hidden. The lamp is brought in for a specific purpose, isn't it? To bring light to the room. And Jesus informs them in verse 22 that nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nothing is kept secret except to come to light. If anyone is here to hear, let him hear. Who's the lamp? Who's the lamp in this passage? It's Jesus, the Son of God, and his mission. He's speaking of himself and the purpose of his coming. The parable points to an image that points to him. Verse 1, chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The whole book is about that. All the parables point to him and his mission, his kingdom, his purpose. He is the lamp of God. John said he is the light of the world. But this lamp pictures entrance of the kingdom of God into their lives in the person and words and works of Christ himself. But here's where the disciples see this is happening in real time. They don't have the benefit of the chosen for the backstory. They can't read their ESC study Bible or their favorite pastor's sermons online. This is all happening in real time for them. Boots are on the ground. He announces the kingdom of God has come. He proclaims the gospel. He says, I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah's promises. And immediately, Mark says, there's miracles, there's signs, there's wonders. There's deliverances of people and the demons are screaming, you are the son of God. There's authoritative teaching. And if I'm a disciple, if I'm Andrew, I'm saying, yeah, let's get on with this. Count me in, follow you. You're TB12 using a sports analogy. I mean, we're going to win some games. But then there's this thing that we all have, right? Expectations that are unspoken but get attached to him and to God when we come into a relationship with him. And you're going to rid us of Rome, right? This oppressive bully empire. You're going to restore our political and economic well-being that we had under David and Solomon, right? That's what God's promise Messiah does. You're going to make my life better, not worse. You're going to end persecution, not increase it because I'm following you. You're going to answer my prayers, not cause me to wait. You're going to cause me to be exalted, not cause me to be humble. See, their expectations create a false identity of the Messiah. And then when the opposition rises to Jesus, when the scribes and Pharisees align themselves with the worldly Herodians and seek to destroy him, when even the demons are told to close their mouths because they're disclosing his identity and it, it impacts his ability to make it, to get to the cross and finish its mission, 
He tells them to be silent. It seems like the lamp is hidden under a basket. It seems like the kingdom of God is veiled. It seems like Jesus' identity is being intentionally obscured. Except to them. Except to the 12. Did you catch that? It's almost, at least for me, inconceivable as an American evangelical that the savior of the world wouldn't slap his story on social and tell the world about it. Instead, he just does the opposite. He says, I'm going to hide my identity from the crowd. I'm going to reveal who I am to the few. And through parables, which don't make sense to the crowd, I'm going to explain everything because they are to equip you to bring my gospel, not to social, to the ends of the earth. Because appearances are deceiving. And the secret of his identity, although graciously revealed to the few, is kept from the many. And so, in the shoes of those disciples, I, I would think, and it's, I'm projecting, that as they look out at the future, and they see rising opposition, they're already living under Roman oppression, and Jesus isn't doing what they expected him to do, although he's doing things they've never seen anyone else do. He's not doing what they want him to do as their Messiah. They're beginning to get anxious, maybe even perplexed. Are you really who you say you are to be? And he gives them this precious promise. Are you listening? It's right there at the end of the second parable. Pay attention to what you hear. and more will be added to you. Oh. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who is not, even what he has will be taken away. In other words, don't judge the kingdom of God by what you can see with your eyes. Don't judge my purposes and God's activity through what you can see with your eyes, what you can experience with your senses. Listen to me. And just to be clear, he has to say that 20 times to his disciples because he knows we live not by faith often. I'll speak for myself. I live by what I see. But the promise is when we root ourselves in what he says, when we not only read what he says, because they couldn't read it, they were just hearing it, when we reflect on it, when we, remember talking about this word, Linda, we ruminate on it. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> we're going to ruminate on lunch in about 30 minutes. When we ruminate on what he says, our perspective changes. Bad analogy, I know, but... I really feel that when I get in the car and I put on these rocking sunglasses, the people look at me not just as the safest driver on the highways of the Commonwealth, 
but one of the coolest. Right? That's what they told me at the sunglass store. You put those on, Mr. Evans. Don't tell me how old you are. I can tell with my eyes things aren't going well lately. But you put those on, and people are going to say, hmm, he's got it. He's a good driver. Appearances are deceiving. Jesus' kingdom is being hidden from the crowd, even though he's compassionately ministering miracles to them. He's not explaining them the parables. It's right there. He's only explaining them to the 12. It's a hidden kingdom. He's hiding his identity. He's the lamp of God but he's not broadcasting who he is. But to those who pay attention to what he says, more. How are you doing with Mark's gospel this summer? You paying attention? You already know what it says, like me. Oh, I've read this. Are you applying it? I know you're reading other things. Praise God. That's why we have our bookshop. But if you think 30 minutes in a sermon with one of us is going to equip you to pay attention to what he says, when this is life-giving, life-saving, disciple-making truths, I wish I was a better, but I don't think it's designed for that. I think you have to get it out again, however you do that. Put it on your bathroom wall, put it on your playlist, put it in your social media so it gets a feed, that you will pay attention to these parables because they not only reveal his identity, but they equip us as disciples to be fruitful and faithful to him. So I'm leaving this first parable. I've, I've set the bait. I like the glasses. Maybe we should leave them on for the rest of the message. Can't really see through them. Second point. Shocking reality. And it should shock us. Verse 26 to 29. God's plans and purposes advance apart from your effort. And that's what he tells them in the next parable. It shocked me when I read it. Now I went to commentary and say, is he really saying this? And Jesus said, verse 26, the kingdom of God is as a man should scatter seed on the ground. That's the parable of the sower. Again, we're not told what kind of seed. He sleeps and he rises. Night and day, the seed sprouts and grows. And he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Another parable, another mystery. Jesus is equipping his disciples with this shocking reality. God's plan and God's kingdom through me is advancing without human power. Don't you see, Lord, the Jewish authorities, they've conspired against us. They're going to eliminate you. You're talking in parables, which is nonsense to a majority of the people. Can, you, can I explain what you mean after the huddle when you give us the secrets of the mystery? Lord, the demons are telling to zip it. 
even though people are freaking out, they're rejoicing in your deliverance and freedom, but they're freaking out because they're saying, you're the son of God. I will silence them. The parable of the seed growing. Scholars characterize it as a parable of growth. But unlike where Dave rightfully said, the parable of the soils calls for you to respond because you read this carefully, there's no call for us to respond. There's no imperative in here. There's no command. It's a perspective that he's giving these perplexed and confused and perhaps discouraged disciples a new set of lenses to look at the kingdom of God, not through their expectations and experiences, but through Jesus' words, whom they're now paying attention to. The kingdom of God is going to grow, and it's going to grow, and it's going to grow, and it's going to grow, and human effort will not be Now, qualification. He does not mean we have no part to play. We just witnessed by God's grace three young people publicly declaring their faith in Jesus Christ. And God used means, amen? He used parents and grandparents. He used churches. He used, he used means. Dave talked about a fruitful field. I think I'm more patient with my mom now than when I was as a teenager. I'm saying that seriously. That's the fruit of the spirit in my life. I couldn't stand in my mom's presence prior to my conversion, listen to her for five seconds before I was running out the door. I know it is sad. But now I sit there for hours and she's repeating the same stories. But it's no good to say I've heard that mom. Tell the one words more flattering about me, not the ones that Bauer was an idiot when he was younger. What the fruit of the spirit. I have participated in that. I've put off the old man, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, and put on the new man. I have mortified the flesh with its deeds. I've said no to ungodly desire. And I've said yes, there's work, there's effort, there's fruit. But God is going to have fruit in my life and not be dependent on my faithfulness because I belong to Christ's kingdom. Yes, we participate. We cultivate. We nurture. But at the end of the day, did you really generate the faith in your heart that brought you to church today? Did you really generate the thought, I'm going to crack my Bible on Monday, listen to it, read it, whatever? Is that really ultimately you? Are you the one that generates the impulse to get up at what time do you pray on Tuesdays? Four in the morning? <laughs> and go to prayer? I mean, you're doing it, but are you really ultimately underneath it all? No! He is. That's the point of this parable. His kingdom is advancing in a thousand ways. His activity in your life and in this church is going on in a thousand ways. And he has chosen only to reveal to you one or two of those ways. It's humbling, isn't it? When we realize how not indispensable you are. But it's also gloriously freeing 
to stand in that place and say, King Jesus, bear fruit, advance your kingdom, do it, and use my weak, humble means. The first time I shared the gospel with my best man and best friend in high school, I did it angrily and self-righteously. I was John the Baptist and thought I was doing God a favor. And he wouldn't talk to me about Christianity for like a decade. He was shocked I asked him to be the best man at my wedding. He was so mad at me. I was basically yelling at him and telling him to repent of his sins and did it so unlovingly. Second time I shared the gospel with him, like 10 plus years later, was after the wedding. His dad had just passed. We're sitting there in Boston, drinking our favorite adult beverage. And I asked a simple question, do you ever think about spiritual things? And he answered it. And I'm, I'm reliving. You ever have a bad parenting moment? I've had a lot of bad evangelism moments. I'm reliving. The last time we talked about spiritual things, I was yelling at you. I was angry. I was self-righteous. I was very proud. And we talked for the next 30 to 45 minutes about his objections to the Christian faith. He sometimes watches this online. He doesn't believe yet. God's up to something in his life, despite me. God's up to something in your life. God's up, God's up to something in our lives. And yes, he uses us, and our, our contribution shouldn't be minimized, because but it's not ultimately where the kingdom of God rests its hope. Not in you, not in me, not in this church, not in the fastest growing faithful church you know of. This parable says, disciples, it's about to get a lot worse. You think my kingdom's kingdom? You think my kingdom's, my kingdom's obscured? I'm heading to the cross. I'm gonna to be tortured and beaten and humiliated as a foe of Rome. I'm gonna be betrayed by one of my own disciples. I'm gonna be abandoned by all of you. You think this kingdom is hidden and obscure and a secret? That's gonna be a low moment. Here's a new perspective. God's kingdom goes on and the cross heralds it. I'm heading for home. That's the parable of the seed growing. And then he ends with the parable of the mustard seed, which for time, I'm not going to reread it. It's familiar. But the mustard seed, right, it's really an herbal plant. That's why it's talked about as a garden, even though it becomes a tree. And I have some mustard seeds down in my office. So if you want one as a souvenir, I can give it to you. You should leave today. We used it as a children's ministry prop a couple years ago. It's the smallest seed. It's proverbial in Jesus' day as small. Small. Kind of like Mighty Mouse is small. Or if you just saw Oppenheimer, an atom is small, but powerful. The mustard seed. And in this parable, despite, despite appearances, the mustard seed, the small tree as an image, a symbol, a metaphor of the kingdom of God that Christ is inaugurating. He engages our imagination. He invites us to ponder. What would you compare the kingdom of God to? And if they're playing along, I'm sure they're saying the mighty army of Rome with banners unfurled, defeating everyone. That's why I was said. Or Mount 
I guess Sinai. I don't know what the largest mountain in Israel is. Mount Everest. Jesus likes small. He likes small. Here he makes the point. The kingdom of God is like a BB, a mustard seed. No mountain, no army. And yet when it is sown, verse 32, it grows. It becomes larger than all the plants. It puts out large branches so that the birds of the air, which is simply an image of the nations that will come to faith in Christ. So what do we do here? We have a parable of contrast. Jesus is comparing two things. His kingdom present, which is small and hidden and seemingly weak and insignificant, obscured, people rejecting him, family thinking he's crazy, the religious leaders opposing him, and a future glorious, massive, earth-filling manifestation of God's kingdom through his promised Messiah Christ being revealed. And he says to you and I, don't be fooled this morning what you see about the kingdom of God today. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Or are you viewing the kingdom of God, its work in your family's life, your kid's life, your neighborhood, your church, another church? Are you viewing the kingdom of God's activity and outworkings primarily? through visibility and visible appearances, through what you see on your feeds, or what you read in a newspaper, or hear on a podcast. I hear that's the new evangelical hobby. All good things, but you can't obey this parable and say that's what's going on in God's kingdom when he says, no, no, it's like a mustard seed. How did that man become a Christian in Uzbekistan? He had a dream of a figure like Christ. Remember I told you a story? And he went to his shaman or whatever it's called, his Muslim mullah, said, why am I dreaming about this figure? I think it's Jesus. It's a shepherd-like figure with no face. And, and he told him, no, that couldn't be Jesus because you don't say your Islamic prayers and God wouldn't respond to you that way. And so he finds a Christian missionary somehow walking around the streets of Uzbekistan. I don't know where Uzbekistan is. Or, and he hears the gospel, he's converted. And now his conversion has led to others being converted so that now there's some churches there in this rural part of Uzbekistan. They need pastors to come in. And, and imagine this, disciple Christian converts that it's not good to have three or four wives. Because that's how the culture is there. The kingdom of God is growing. It can't see it. It's not always visible. I can't find that on my social media feeds. John Piper's not talking about it. It's growing because the parable says, do not judge what God is doing through Christ, through what you can see. And so how do we apply this this morning as I wrap up? How, do, how does one who comes in weakness as a pastor or a follower of Jesus or an evangelist or a parent, how does one who comes in weakness to Jesus put on this parable and adopt a new perspective and have it then shape my faith today and this week and have it begin to shape the contours of my life so that my journey with him, my growth with him, 
my assurance of him. Each of you has a defining perspective that you turn to when you turn for comfort and hope. Each of us has a defining perspective when we get disappointing news. This week, someone in the church will receive disappointing news of some nature, and you will have a defining perspective that makes sense of that news. Will it be the parables of the kingdom that you know, and I'm saying this to myself, or will it be what I read on Facebook or here on my podcast? Or what even a friend says, when I haven't applied these simple stories. When my relationships falter, when my job is frustrating or even terminated, when my prospects for the future seem capped or even dimmed, when I see failure. Do you ever find yourself in a relationship where you're trying again, you've gotten counsel, you've prayed, you've worked up the courage again, you go to the person and you're gonna try to initiate and demonstrate God's at work in me, and you don't even get like, hello and good morning out, and you already realize you're engaged in a conflict. And you're confronted with failure. I'm just talking about parenting teenagers. I don't know what you guys are thinking about. Or I'm parenting adult kids who aren't who they said they were when they were baptized. Or I'm in a relationship as a single and she or he said they were Christians, but they have not been walking this relationship out with integrity and they've been saying one thing and doing something else. Or I'm in a church and there's leaders that not just are flawed or imperfect, but actually need to be disciplined. I mean, I can just come up with a hundred scenarios. Where do you and I turn when that's our defining perspective? And my challenge to me today is that these parables have gone red but unapplied just like it was for these disciples. So he says to us, listen to them. Be shaped by them. Pick them up. Work them in. Ruminate on them. Because it will bring assurance to you and comfort to you and ultimately bolster your faith in what Christ is doing in your life today when all around you it seems that present, past, and future eh, dubious. Where are you at today? Ultimately, I close with this. The parable of the mustard seed finds its most powerful expression in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus' kingdom looked never more pitiful, never more weak, never more foolish than when he was suspended from the earth, taking upon himself my wrath suspended in the air, enduring my judgment, having been abandoned by his, quote, faithful friends, 
suffering alone for my redemption. And as Paul says in Colossians, it looked to the human eye pitiful, but spiritually he was vanquishing sin. He was defeating Satan. He was conquering death. And he made a display of them through his triumphant resurrections, and we couldn't see it until the gospel was preached and our eyes were opened and we realized, behold the mustard seed. Friend, remember the parables. Put them on this week. Even though these truths may feel at times fantastic and unbelievable in light of your, they're found in scripture. So that when we look at the world and our circumstances, his promise to be faithful to his kingdom, his purposes to fulfill, despite appearances, is triumphant ultimately. There will come a day, and I close with this, Jim, as you return, where we will see him face to face. And if that day be when he returns, then the mustard seed, if you will, will be manifest in glorious splendor and majesty. And what was hidden will now be revealed. And those whom by grace have confessed his name and repented of their sins and bowed to the name above all names before his return, it will be a glorious reunion. But for all, it will be a triumphant declaration that appearances are deceiving. But the kingdom of God not only is here and often hidden, but it is at work in ways we do not know. Let's pray. What a hopeful, simple set of parables, Lord Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that in your patience with us, you explain everything clearly and carefully, not wanting one to be unprepared for the uncertainty and difficulties and circumstances of following you in a hostile and broken world. But having said this all, Lord, I'll, I'll pray for myself and then for any who would identify with me. Forgive me for reading in such a hurry these simple parables and saying, I know that, and not applying them not receiving from you the life-giving perspective from them. And then going in the world and living out my Christian life by another perspective. Perhaps the perspective that just broke on my phone or showed up on my feed or captivates my attention on the radio. Lord, fill us with a passion for your word that enables us together and apart to pay careful attention to what you say and then by your grace applies it. And in these parables in particular, may we be those who do not judge what God is doing by what we see, but rather, Lord, look at what we see through the lens of Scripture and as you call the disciples to put our hope and our trust and our faith in you. I pray for any who do not know you, Lord, I pray today would be the day where they would receive you by faith, a mustard seed of faith, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior, 
who died and rose again for me, that today, through my weak faith, I can repent and turn and turn to him and believe and experience the grace and mercy and love that you give. May that be a day for someone listening today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Let's stand.